Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Eveline Alexis, the author of Haiti Fights Back, The Life and Legacy of Charlemagne Perrault, published in 2021 by Rutgers University Press. Charlemagne Perrault is one of those historical figures that is frequently invoked, and yet we don't know that much about him or his influence. This book goes very far towards correcting that, providing a detailed and nuanced understanding of the man and his context. It also considers memory and the sites of memory, both in Haiti and New York City, taking in a legacy that continues to this day. Here's our conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Eveline. Merci. Thank you. It is so nice to have you here. Likewise. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. Um, So, okay. So I would like to start um, by asking you, when did you know you had to write this book? Was it a conversation? Was it an image? Was it a text? Yeah, I love that question. So it was an image. And unfortunately, it was the haunting, dispossessive image of him having endured violence, the lynching enacted upon him by U.S. invaders. And then having that image, learning about how that image was then reproduced via photograph where U.S. Marines and naval men boarded planes and distributed the image of him deceased and lynched successfully, right, trying to stifle and end Haitian resistance. And luckily for us in the Caribbean, that image served to empower Haitian women as well as Haitian men and them um, to resist further until U.S. empire ended in IET. Yeah, it's really interesting that you started there because, um, you know, some of us do know about that image and we know about, you know, what happened to it with the dropping out of airplanes and stuff. But um, just the idea that, okay, we're going to start with this image, but we're going to push a lot further and talk about this person as a man, you know, who was he? How did he live? Um, You know, let's let's get him as a human being and not just as an image as sort of so degraded. So so maybe you can tell us what kind of a man was he? How how did he live? What what did he do? And we'll get to how he died a little later. But let's start with how he lived. I love that. So I remember working with a developmental editor and she's just like, what you're doing is rescuing him from the abyss. And Mm. the fact that I had started with his death, she's like, you're already dismissing your contribution. And I was like, oh, wow. So I love like that. (laughs) mention of, you know, this was a man born in the century of IET, successful and only um, Black revolution against people like Napoleon Bonaparte and French imperialism, colonialism, etc. And so I think very much the revolution period influences ideology in terms of defending IET's um, nationalisme, right? And what I mean by that is defending Haitians as well as the nation itself by any means necessary. There's this idea that that we successfully joined the ranks of France and the United States. In fact, we helped the United States when we were stationed in Savannah, Georgia, doing their own U.S. American Revolution. And so Shalman Pidat, as well as his brothers, he has four or five brothers, um, is the sole biological son of his mother, Madame Massina Peralt. He was born in Ange to a father who was a general in the army, Rémi Peralt, 
And I think his position, both the mom as a seamstress, but the dad as a general in the army, connected him people-wise to a large spectrum of the population. But also, if we think about Kodioism not being something, a political strategy, as being reserved for simply Latin American and Central American states, but really as across the Americas, right? I think about Washington's term and his wife, Martha Washington, or just the Roosevelt's and the nepotism there that Kodioism, um, this idea idea of political patronage and political nepotism is something that Shalman Pirat, as well as his brothers, are going to benefit from. And so although the parents are not landed or economic elites, their positions as political and military elites really helps facilitate his own rise as a political man during this time period, but also even before then, gives him access to prestigious educational institutions in IET, um, one of which being St. Louis Gonzague. And I just was mentioning this to someone the other day, like St. Louis Gonzague is in Port-au-Prince, IET today. It's still an all-male school. And yet him being born in Ash, right? It's a distance. So in order to pay for lodging as well as board, tells you that the family had to make sacrifice. But I think they knew what they had on their hands with Shalman Pirat because he's going to rise not only as a politician, but one who devotes really his life. He's martyred for IET and martyred uh, for what I call patriotic kinship, both Haitian women as well as men in his fight, his successful fight against the U.S. invaders from 1915 through 1919. So there is um, a challenge that you really rise to in this book, which is the challenge of sources. Um, And so I would love to hear you talk about what what kinds of sources did you use and how did you deal with really the scarcity of, you know, his voice in, in, you know, lots of sort of an abundance of texts or anything like that. But, but on the other hand, so there's this kind of idea of there's not that much on with, from him directly, but there's an abundance of U S based materials that you have to read. And you did read very carefully and very, you know, kind of across and along the grain and all of those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I knew being a child of Haitian immigrants myself that I was going to go home. And although my parents never brought me to Haiti because there's a whole Duvalier dictatorship trauma that people are not discussing openly. And so being in graduate school and working with people like Lowell Goodmanson, Jane Rausch, um, Professor Johnny Higginson, I knew that in order to do this work well, IET is where I needed to go. And despite the chaos of 2004 with Aristide being deposed or, you know, voluntarily leaving, I knew still that I needed to go to IET. And it's there that I encountered murals with his face um, alongside Jean-Jacques de Saline, pairing the people across chronology and across centuries and saying, just like Jean-Jacques de Saline ended this revolution in 1803 for us, Shalman Pirat did the same in 1915, but also with the disembarkment of the United Nations soldiers, right, coming from all across the world, like um, seeing Shalman Pirat being deployed by Haitian peasants, Haitian market women who are called market entrepreneurs, and just different people, like formerly educated folks. To me, I was like, this is the project that I want to do. And, you know, I benefited because I know French, obviously, and Haitian Creole. 
Wu Shigayan, um, the Haitian historian who did this work originally. And we're in the process of trying to translate one of his books where he interviewed Kakos from this period, right? And looking at the fact that when I'm in Haiti or whether, you know, I'm steeped in a Wu Shigayan text, it's interesting to see that they never position Shalman Pedat as dead. He's always alive. And it's not until the end that they remind you of the, that haunting image. But for them, he's this respectable uh, image of Black respectability. He is in his bow tie or dressed in a suit. And so those are the images that I ran into across in IET, on walls, in the homes of his um, progeny and his grandchildren. And so in the archives in IET, I just started seeing the reimaginations of Shalman Pirat very much in the same way that Che Guevara or Sandino is um, processed during this time period as well, in the sense that they're alive, they're seen as people who have successfully waged a fight against U.S. empire, and despite the fact that their lives are cut short whether in 1919 or 1934, I mean, Haitians pick up Shalman Pirat in 1934 in a painting wise, again in 1957 and through this 2004 period. So in a way, I felt like Shalman Pirat was speaking uh, to me as well as Kakos members through those um, Caribbean pedagogical interventions that they were making. And then I was fortunate enough. I mean, no one wanted to touch this project in terms of grants. Um, I don't know if it's because they thought Haiti was unsafe as if, you know, Massachusetts or Ohio isn't safe, but I got the U S military. They gave me a fellowship. Literally. It was like the most underrated thing. They were like, Oh, you won this fellowship and here's a check for $10,000. And you know, as a graduate student making 12K, it was the best thing in order for me to fully engage myself in the research. And then what I often say is that racist, sexist, people who are against queer folks, not fearing them, but who really are against them, they keep copious, beautiful, organized records. So being in the U.S. military archives, I was just stunned, shocked. I'm grieving. I'm crying. I'm cussing them out. And it's all recorded, right? This is in Quantico, Virginia. But it also was just full of Shalman Pirat's letters to his mom, her response, his direction to Haitian women and men saying, listen, it's time for us to rise and do away with these white people who they felt had come to restore slavery. So in different ways, you had to put all of these sources, the mural sources, the paintings, the drumming circles in conversations with very letters written from a very racist, colonial and imperialist lens. So, yeah. And you did the same thing with the women, right, who are, as you call them, market entrepreneurs, but really they're everywhere in the book. But I would imagine that they were also you had to sort of um, dig them out of the sources in a particular way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I benefited from the tutelage. And you know, it's like this hindsight is when you're in graduate school. I'm like, I went to Cornell. And what that meant was I had access to Dr. Margaret Washington, who's, you know, a tour de grace, a tour de force in her own right. And so having her and sitting through classes about African-American women and not realizing the intervention that she was making to the scholarship, but also the Cornell curriculum where women, yeah, we're talked about, but we're not talked about as such. And so, you know, like in her honor, but also the women who helped raise me, whether it was my grandma and aunties and my own mother and my sister, it was important for me to, every time I saw a woman, I was like, okay, she is either a spy, a wife of, 
um, a visible or perhaps invisible character who is also helping to deconstruct U.S. empire. And so for me to find all of these sources of women facing down with like seven U.S. military troops and one U.S. reporter or another sister who like reports on the fact that Shalman Bihrat is going to be betrayed. And even at the moment of his death, there is a woman recorded at his side. And unfortunately, you know, the irritation is that I don't know her name. I don't know her position. Was she his wife, his mistress, a sister, a cousin? Who was she? And the fact that we don't know that, but that I think it behooves us as scholars and scholars who do interdisciplinary Afro-diasporic, Latin American diasporic work for us to say enough with this silence, we need to name them. So I went back and forth about, is this respectful? And decided, yes, it is. So I I name all the unnamed women. And I talk about how these market entrepreneurs were very visible, although invisible to the outside gaze, very visible um, conduits of information to Kakos leaders. And I position them then as Kakos fighters themselves. So, yeah. yeah, actually, I, that, that's one of the things that emerges really clearly um, is are the networks of information around um, Charlemagne and, and everyone else. Right. So there's these there are these networks of information and there's silence as resistance. And there's the way that Kako can be, you know, a very fluid term. Right. Are they aren't they if they're giving them food or do they count, you know, all of these kinds of things that don't really matter except for maybe to, to the Marines. Um, and you really can tell that it's not just men doing battle, but everybody is contributing. And so when did that sort of become clear to you as a way to think about the occupation period? Definitely. I think when I gave myself permission to critique Shalman Pedat, I think very much like Haitians, I had like drank the Shalman Pedat rum. I'm like, oh my gosh, he's so great. And then I'm like, wait a minute. Why he always greeted the men folk in particular that he named with the image and honor of Dessaline, of a Pétion, of a Louverti. And I'm thinking to myself, wait, what is going on here? Like he's so close to his mom. She at one point was his eyes and ears on the ground. Like, honey, she was like, beloved, stay low, you know, watch before you move. And I was just like, wait a minute, you're so close to her. And yet you're not naming um, other women. So I, once I gave myself permission to critique him and I was like, I have to do it. <laughs> and so I was wondering like, where are the women? Cote Famio in the Kakos letters, in their naming. Um, and also this idea that can we talk about gendered politics? So you're going to mention Tusa Louverti and Desaline, but not mention Claire Ivrez or Sanité Belair or a Cecil Fatima. So once I gave myself permission to say, okay, I got to go there. And, you know, we go there during Domino's games, during family cookouts and baptisms. And I was like, okay, I'm, I need to go there publicly in this scholarship. And so that for me became a freeing way of saying, listen, this is how we frozen Haitian women. They're either the Catherine Flon who sold the flag. They're either Sanité Belair, or they only jump to Arthur Pascal um, some people in terms of her interim president during ISTEAD, others, and thank goodness there's some great research coming out about the Haitian feminist movement from a lens that is, you know, they're formally educated, um, very much like what we're seeing in Cuba and the Dominican Republic. And so I, I looked at these ordinary women who, again, you know, if you think about um, just conduits of information and how the Marine is not checking for the market woman. He's thinking she's just selling mangoes or cocoa, coconuts. Um, and yet she's like actively spying, actively harboring cockles and is herself a cockle. So yeah, that became important. 
Yeah, it, it's it's very fascinating to think about the the kinds of information networks and how important those were, mm-hmm. uh, and that comes up, you know, throughout the occupation. But then, um, you know, there's a moment where it seems to break down, which is when he dies, right? So um, maybe you can walk us through that that uh, episode. Definitely. So, you know, what's interesting is that, and I I had to go back and forth about this. I'm like, what is this methodology called? It's not lying, but you find the U.S. Marines. And finally, just speaking to my mom and um, Maria Gat Nicolas, and later, uh, gosh, what is his name? The linguist at MIT, Michel de Graff, I want to say his last name is so helpful. I was like, what do they call when they say it exists, but it doesn't exist, but they're documenting its existence? And my mom was like, which means throw rocks, um, but then hide your hands. So at every juncture in this U.S. military archives, they're like, this is not political. They're a bunch of peasants. They're Negroes. They're hoodoo, voodoo people, you know, voodoo um, spelt with the four O's the erroneous way. And so, But then they're like keeping copious records, like Sean Mapirat is on the move. He's in a Panama hat, blue jeans. There's a woman like um, gathering uh, sweet potatoes, patat. What is she doing? Oh my God, look at all of these huts is what they call the home. Um, why are they flying a white flag? What does the white symbolize? Yada, yada, yada. So I'm like, okay, you realize it's political. You you recognize that it's so organized that, you know, these huts to the potato, the pata, the potatoes, to, you know, what is he wearing becomes so consuming. So they launch this very intimate, confidential operation. They get their two people that they're paying, these two Haitian men, Jean-Baptiste Conze being the more famous one. And they're like, we need to infiltrate the cacos. And what Conze doesn't recognize is that Shalman Pirat, again, because of his wide reach politically and amongst the community, is aware that betrayal is afoot. And so Jean-Baptiste Conze, as well as, I want to say it was either Smedley Butler, but now I'm thinking it's probably Herman Hannigan. If to be more accurate, they mimic Jean-Baptiste Conze shooting this U.S. soldier in front of the market. And then the market women themselves report on this. And there's fake blood. There's like red, I don't know if it's ketchup or whatever, like red ink. It's so theatrical. Like I'm like, if there's ever a documentary on this period, I cannot wait for that pivotal moment. And so the U.S. soldier is, you know, um, feigning like he's shot. He's in need of critical care. And it's at that moment that Chalman Pirat says, okay, Jean-Baptiste Conze, you are one of us. And then unfortunately that leads to them donning blackface, the U.S. soldiers, um, and then the night of October 31st into the 1st of November, uh, lynching this man uh, in a very crude way. And then to your point, Alejandra, they, at one point, like when you look at his, what do you call that thing? It's not an autopsy, but it's the record of who he was. So they put he's Negro. He weighs how many pounds. There's a scar on his bottom. And they put agriculturalist. At no point is he politician. Did he go to Saint Louis Gonzague? Who his mama is? Okay. And they they've intercepted those letters from his mom and translated it in a you know like a very pedantic, rudimentary way. None of that. So if you're just looking at the death record, I guess it's what it's called. You're like, oh, he was just a farmer, and it's like, no. Like, stop the lion, stop like throwing rocks and hiding your hands. And so, yeah. 
So they knew perfectly well. And it is amazing how powerful that narrative sort of continued on. And not just for him, but maybe for all of the Kakos. I mean, the image is so much about sort of this was just a ragtag, you know, guerrilla fighters sort of thing, right? They really um, effectively silenced that whole aspect of the resistance, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because I don't think they realize how organized these people were. So Benat Batgaville, and I'm so happy that Batgaville's family has kept his name. And I know if not a son, a definitely a progeny wrote a book, and it's at the Library of Congress about his own, um, you know, relatives' participation in the Kakos War. So Batraville is a Vaudouisan, he's a Ougan, um, a male priest in the religion of Vaudoun, and he's a school teacher. So automatically, you're already seeing the access that this man has. He's Shanman uh, Pedat's minister of war at this time, side by side with this man, or sometimes they separate very intentionally for their battles. So Shalman Pedat is gone and immediately there's a minister of war and finance and someone else that are like, okay, come on. And within days, they have now um, engaged the U.S. invaders militarily to the point where they don't even make their hunt for Batraville private. It's very public. So if you look at Les Nouvelles, one of the popular and enduring Haitian journals at this time, they're like, we need to get Batraville off of these streets. Actually, he needs to be dead is what they're saying. And this is how much they would pay for his body. And so they succeed with Batgavid after months of trying to get him. And they're so confused. Like, what do they mean by minister of war? Like, I'm like, you're not confused. You know, this is political. So why wouldn't they be as organized as any soldier coming from Quantico? And so after Batgavil is gone, it continues. And many of the Cacos leaders then go to nearby Dominican Republic um, and are launching different types of fights and intel through those channels. Yeah, and if, if effectively, I mean, you argue and 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 demonstrate that that really is, I don't know, the beginning of the end of the occupation, right? Um, and and then the second part of the book I thought was really interesting because you know he, he you 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 put his death at the in the middle of the book, and so I thought, okay, what what's going to happen now? <laughs> and, um, but but the second part of the book really traces the way that he haunts Haitian history, you know, and gets invoked over and over again at different moments and in, in quite different ways. Um, and uh, the very first um, discussion that you have about that is that the initial post-occupation uses of Peralt are really quite cynical, um, right? And so there was this kind of idea of, yes, we're going to invoke him, but not do any, any, and none of the things that he stood for maybe are going to, are going to actually come to fruition. So how did that happen? Definitely. What you find is that a man named Stenio Vincent, who's going to become president, I don't know, Stenio Vincent is an interesting character. Like he really needs his own book in the sense that he's part of what's considered the learned, formerly educated movement against the invasion that's going to coincide with what the Kakos are doing, because many of the Kakos are newspaper people. They're also business owners. So they're not simply Paysan or peasants or agriculturalists. And so you look at Stenio Vincent and a whole slew of other um, of these learned men, they have access to go to Washington, D.C., protest with different people and write about it. So he's a member of Union Patriotique. So you're thinking, okay, you're still alive. They didn't do away with you. You know, he's lighter skin. His hair is a little bit more straighter than Shalman Pirat. And so he has different access. So although he was helpful with the end of the U.S. invasion, as he rises to political power in that 1934 moment, 
He literally attaches himself to Shalman Pirat and is saying, we're going to host a funeral for him. And then Philome Ombed, the painter who I'm writing this article about, because Philome Ombed, you know, I, I don't want to say he's a cacos, but because he's so well versed in the history of the cacos, he has so many paintings about it. And so Philome Ombed silently paints the funeral of Shalman Pirat, which in that moment, you know, documents this sort of farewell to a national dignitary, a global, if you will, dignitary. You know, the doors are shut, people are peering out, they're dressed in what we see in the Harlem Renaissance and those uh, Black civil rights movement in the United States of America. And the procession follows Shalman Pirat in this uh, in this uh, limousine, or I forget what they call those that carry a corpse. And so it's an interesting way from 1934 that you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is Haiti's second independence. Pa- uh, Senor Vincent and Shalman Pirat are side by side. And then unfortunately, what happens to Senor Vincent? He's still president um, during Rafael Trujillo's assassination of Afro-Dominicans and also Haitians. And he doesn't really say much in um, against Trujillo, which is one of his major faults. But because of the fact that he is aligned almost ideologically with economic U.S. imperialism in terms of the wide breadth that he gives these U.S. Uh, companies um, access to Haiti, access to the resources, that it becomes one of those situations where like, you're not really about Shalman Pedat and ultimately Haiti's liberation, which you are, is not necessarily a puppet, but it's about you and not the nation itself. So yeah. So in that ways, I think it's very much your um your accurate assessment that it's almost um they pick him up and they pick him up in a wrong fashion, the politicians at least. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that people were sort of tuned into that? Do you think that Haitians were paying attention to the use of the images and and or the you know the the memory um, and then the the sort of failure to fulfill that promise? Yeah. No, I really do. Because when you look at the disoccupation presidents, and for me, that's like 1934 to 1950. And I know that's up for debate for many people. So I look at Vincent Elilesco, and I'm blanking on the other one, Estime, Dumarse Estime. And I'm like, all three of y'all in some ways do good things. Like, of course, we're going to support World War II. Who wouldn't at this juncture? But then you can't then invite the, what is that company called? The Haitian American High School, perhaps the sugar company, to do rubber cultivation that's going to leave environmental scars on IET, but also dispossess the very people that undergird any economy, right? Peasants, low-income laborers. So it's just like, you're learned men, you know the situation, so what is going on? And the fact that you can have a 1946 populist revolt that I think Millery Pauline, Chantal Vierna, and Matthew Smith's book, right, in Black in Haiti, does so well in terms of looking at the Haitian women and men who are communist, socialist, Marxist, um, talking about what is happening and yet for this discord and disconnect to happen between 1934 and 1950, a number of Haitians are saying this is just an extension of U.S. imperialism. The U.S. basically has not won, even while they're shouting it's their moment of uh, Haiti's second independence in 1934. So there's a disconnect between the politicians, but then the people on the ground, I think we're always attuned, right? Like we're attuned to... Ugh, just so many things, like how Ukraine and Russia is being played out, but then Ethiopia and Eritrea is not being discussed, or Haitian children refugees in Texas are being rounded up by 
ICE, but white Ukrainian children are being rounded up lovingly by President Biden. So there's an interesting way in which we on the ground always know what's 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 up, what's going on, who's being oppressed further. And yet the politicians are just like in their own little world. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but but there's also the artists, which you talk about quite a bit, which in really fascinating ways. And so um, I, I thought maybe one of the, the arguments that you were trying to make was that the role of images um, both sort of worked with, but also against official narratives so that there was something else for people to sort of look on, look, look at and hang on to. Right. No, definitely. I think in terms of the four, like I think about Philomé Aubin, and again, you know, this is a man who's a Mason. He has this interaction with the two white men who claim that they helped found the Saint des Art, which, you know, has been thankfully debunked. It was Haitian people who helped found the Saint des Art with the help of these two white U.S. American men, one of whom stayed on in Haiti. And so Philomé Aubin becomes one of these, I think they call him a noyiste painter at the time. And he paints again as this mason. He's invited to paint um, a mural in one of Haiti's churches, an Episcopal church. And so at every juncture, when you look at his painting, I'm like, wow, there's a lot on the cockles and the cockles successfully winning against the U.S. soldiers. And I think about his own position as someone growing up in Capaicia and seeing the construction of prisons by Haitians forcibly um, made to uh, construct these prisons and not get paid for it. Right. So this idea that the Blanc have returned um, slavery, the whites have come to restore slavery is very much the environment that he is um, faced with. But he's also seeing people like Shalman Perat, as well as Benat Batgavil and so many other women fight against these invaders. So him deploying, and I use that word intentionally, like my artist people are like, we don't use that term in art history. And I'm like, but he kind of did deploy this. Like 1934, you have this painting of his funeral. And then we fast forward when Haiti has this very dark period with um, Francois Duvalier, the first especially. Especially, and then he releases this um, the crucifixion of Shalman Pedat, which unfortunately um, is at the Milwaukee Art Museum. I really wish it could be in Haiti, but it's at you know it's in the United States, and it's a simplistic painting. It's Shalman Pedat, perhaps, or maybe Jesus. Um, it's Mary Magdalene by his side, or maybe it's Madame Masina Pedat, Shalman Pedat's um, mother. It's him at the door, propped up very much the way they had propped up his deceased body. And, you know, he's sitting, it's almost like this heavenly ascendancy into heaven. And we see the Haitian flag, the the Wujak Blee, Drapeau Wujak Blee, the red and blue, and then the cross. And I was just like, oh my God, this is so brilliant because it's conversing with the religious audience who may not know Shalman Perat's story, but now they do because he titles it the crucifixion of Shalman Perat. He doesn't, he doesn't do what I do and call it a lynching, but he's very diplomatic. <laughs> But I think the timing, Alejandra, of his release of that painting to say, listen, Charman Perat died for us. What are we doing? Like, what? why are we not fighting against Duvalier as much as we need to? Yeah. I'm glad that you brought up Duvalier because that was where I wanted to go next. And I wonder if you can talk just a little bit more about the role of the image and the memory of Peralt in in those years. Yeah, it's an interesting one in the sense that both he as well as his son, who, you know, obviously wasn't qualified. The man was like 18 or 19. And and Simone Duvalier had four grown daughters, three to four grown daughters. So why not? Right. And suffrage had passed in Haiti. So why not give that opportunity? 
to a woman to continue the terror? Like why with a, anyway, with a little 18 year old? Yeah. You know, I think that you're the first person who's pointed, I don't know, maybe not, maybe you're not the first person, but it's the first time I've seen, wait a minute, he had daughters (laughs) and they were older. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) So it's an interesting way in which I think resistance operated um, very silently because it had to. So I remember speaking to my mom and one of my uncle-in-laws and they were like, everyone had to salute the regime. And I was like, oh, what does this mean? And they're like, you cannot be anti-Duval. You can either be anti-Duvalierist or Duvalierist. And then fortunately, Michel Wostuyot with his PhD in anthropology, in his book, Haiti, State Against Nation, I think is the title, he talks about that mentality that my mom and my uncle and my Motoy Landwin talked about, where it's like, you could either be one camp or the other, or like other Haitians whom I interviewed with, like, listen, an egg could not crack in your home without Duvalier knowing. So that far reach of Duvalier himself won, but also the fact that he becomes one of the first Haitian presidents in the 20th century to invite the U.S. military to come train an army against his people is so telling about the machinations of his own empire, but also the continuations of U.S. empire. So what's in it for the United States is just for them to spy on Cuba, to spy on Fidel Castro and people like Haiti, Santa Maria, right? So it's like this idea that we don't know what to do with Cuba, but you know what? We're going to keep Cuba under surveillance. And so Haitians fled, right? So, so many people right now know of Raul Peck. His family fled to the Congo. I know my family fled to the States. Others like Kawal Charles, whose work I love about gender and violence and gender and agency in Haiti, she went to Mexico. So there's like a, a contingent of Haitians who are scattered in Montreal, in France, and just different parts of Africa and Latin America. I mean, how many Haitians were in Puerto Rico and the Bahamas plotting against the Duvaliers, sometimes successfully landing, but not being able to successfully execute his physical end or his natural end because there were always eyes and ears on the ground. But I think the fact that so many groups existed. And I always think about migrating as a form of resistance. This is for survival, not only of yourself, but for your family. So I always look at that as a as a resistance tool. So I think in many ways, Haitians spoke with their bodies, even when their voice had to be silent. And so in that period of Haitians migrating to New York City, they start the Shalman Pirat Center. And what's happening in Haiti is that second Duvalier, Jean-Claude Duvalier, is bestowing honors on the military in the name of Shalman Pirat. So he'll round up people and say, oh, we're going to have a ceremony. And then, you know, I bequeath you this in the name of Shalman Pirat, which is an interesting I don't know, too against Shalman Pirat's memory, this idea of like, we will have order, but the order coming from the Duvaliers is violent and sordid and egregious. So yeah. And then there was also a political party named after him, right? Oh my God, Alejandra, I literally looked around. I think I found this one at the University of Florida. And I said, wait a minute, is this? And then I'm like looking, because you know Shalmanite is a French name. So I'm like, maybe it's not my Shalman Pirat. I'm like, no, Evie, it is. So <laughs> I'm looking at this thing and I didn't name the man's name because, yeah, you know, asylum and immigration issues. And I'm reading this and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is in Spanish. It's in French. It's in English. It is not in Creole though. Um, And so they come together. It is unclear if they are in Haiti. I feel like they are, but given the, the tenor of the time and how violent it was, I think they might be in New York or elsewhere, like the aforementioned nations that I named. And I didn't include Italy. So like even thinking about Haitians, 
migration to Italy at this time. So in this Shalman Pirat um, Liberation Front, they're calling on Columbus, linking Columbus to Cologne, which they're linking to the United States. And then they're saying, well, you too, Duvalier, have had a hand. It's like this trifecta. So they named the U.S. Duvalier and Haitian elites, who oftentimes are lighter skin or or mixed with German heritage, Syrian, Lebanese heritage, etc., as this trifecta holding ordinary and extraordinary Haitians hostage. And they go in. Alejandro, I'm talking about, like, they went for the jugular. It was very clear that they weren't mincing words. They call into question the USID, um, the U.S. role and other people's role in Mozambique, in Zimbabwe. So for them, this is this is essentially their third world fight. And I put third world in quotes because I know it's a problematic term of adoration, but also like eh, dismissal. And so it's just a fascinating thing. Now, if you tell me, I cannot find this man, although I know um, what he's seeking, I cannot find other members of this front. And people didn't believe until I showed them the record. They were like, oh my God. And so there, but somebody that I spoke to was saying that they think the group was part of what is known as the Haitian Communist Party. I think it was Puke. And then they went underground and called themselves the benign term of Shalman Pedat because for everyone across the political spectrum, Shalman Pedat is neutral, is Sweden or whatever, um, or Switzerland, one of the two. And not like a, yeah, not like radical, 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 but like Haitian, martyred Haitian. So it's just fascinating. And I want to do more with that work, with that man's permission. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And and this idea that he was neutral, or that, that the memory was neutral is really fascinating. I was just gonna sort of ask you to talk about that more, because it seems like, okay, there's so many different uses, where people like, was there one sort of thing that everybody agreed was being invoked? Or was it kind of this kind of umbrella term where like, this is, this was a person who was, as you say, martyred. And so, you know, who suffered for a cause? Right? What do you think? Yeah, I feel like different people picked him up for various reasons. And I remember struggling because people were just like, is this part two of the book necessary? And I'm like, well, they don't let him die in 34 and 57 and 76 and 2004 onwards. So I'm like, there has to be something done here with it. And it's interesting to see how like the disoccupation presidents picked it up to like politically just attach themselves to him. But then we fast forward to the 80s and what happens? We encounter the priest, Jean-Bertrand Alice who literally, and I found this fascinating in reading Dr. Alex Dupi's work, you know, holds this vigil. So he holds this march to Fort Dimash with his congregants. And all the time they're chanting Shalman Pedat and really facing against this prison that harbored so many of our Haitian ancestors, our mothers, our fathers, our grandmothers, um, etc. And so uh, Alicide himself rises to political ascendancy using Shalman Pedat as a tool that's more akin with uh, Desalines and saying that down with the whites, down with the whites who've come to enslave us. And so he would say, I greet you down with USAID. I greet you in the name of Shalman Pirat in the memory of him. And then what was interesting, I was hanging out with the drummer for a well-known Haitian band and he brought me to this drumming circle and I was like, oh my goodness, how am I gonna document this as a valid source in a historical book? 
But they were talking about the fact that they felt betrayed by Ali Steed in the sense that when he endured his first coup d'etat and went to the United States, when he came back on the tanks that were marked for U.S. soldiers, he abandoned Shalman Pirat and all of a sudden started singing a different political tune. I greet you in the name of Toussaint Louverti, who, I don't know, I guess is frozen erroneously for contemporary people as more neutral, as assertive rather than aggressive. And I think about Toussaint Louverti is side by side with a Cecil Fatima or the unnamed woman who's committing infanticide that for them, liberty and black liberation and emancipation was key, no matter the means to which they could accomplish it. And so for me, Toussaint Louverti is not that different from Desalines and very much that Shalman Pirat is not that different from, you know, any other figure from that period who's um, resisting whether or not with their bodies militarily or with their mouths through newspapers and reports. So Ali Steed gets a bad rap among many who felt that he abandoned Shalman Pirat in order to keep ascending to power with the United States by his side. Yeah, I noticed, I thought that that was a really interesting moment in the book where, you know, there's this switch from Pirat to to Toussaint's memory and just the idea that people are deliberately you know, picking up on each one of these figures. And I, I, I actually can't imagine that happening in the United States very well, because we just don't know enough about our, our the people in the U.S.'s past, right? But it seems like, you know, they knew what cues and what, what kinds of ideas they were sort of um, trying to communicate by choosing one leader over another. It's really mm-hmm. fascinating. And the fact that the people themselves know this, right? So this is not like a conference that we've had or like a journal of Latin American studies, a journal of Haitian studies. It's like these journals are like, yo, how could we? We put our... And you know, when you think about the IC period and the gun violence that was in parts of Cité Soleil, people are like, I picked up a gun too, like against the US or against people who were against IC. And for them to really feel... like You felt the visceral tone um, change when they're like, how could he betray us? And I'm like... Uh, I'm just documenting as a neutral observer. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if we to to sort of wrap up because I've taken up a lot of your time. How do how do you think? What's the legacy today, and and what would you like to see that legacy look like? Mm-hmm, definitely, I think the legacy today, like um, his great granddaughter Ilian Piansky talked about this. She was like, "If Haitians find liberty today, it's because of Shalman Pedat." And you know, to that I add all the Haitian women, um, many of whom, too many of whom, are unnamed who sacrifice their lives, but also just their bodies in terms of the rape and uh, molestation culture that existed under the U.S. invasion. So, for me, thinking about the legacy legacy of Shalman Pedat, I immediately flash back to some of the women that uh, Dr. Evelyn Tuyo writes about in the infamous Rosalie, where it's like a network of maternal figures doing what they need to do in order to be free. And so when I think about Shalman Pedat, I obviously think about Haitians' liberation. And what does it mean to be free of U.S. control, France's control, elite Haitians' control, some of whom are mixed um, in terms of national identities? Um, so I think about that. And what I hope for his legacy today is that very much like we see the image of Che Guevara in an almost, mm, it's not a dense way. Like I remember like locally here, there was an ice cream shop selling Che Guevara scoops. And I'm like, 
why would you attach capitalism to him? You know what I mean? Like that, ugh, it, it boils my blood. But then I'm thinking, I want a Shanman Pera t-shirt. I want a stamp. Obviously, there's a stamp in Haiti and a coin in Haiti and a monument for him. But I want for his name to have global resonance as Sandino or as Zapata. Um has. So yeah, so that's what I would say. And then of course, for that Haitian, my market female entrepreneurs, my queer and proud Haitians, my Haitians who can't be proud because they're being violently acted upon for the youth themselves to have access to education. That's what I want Shalman Pedat's legacy to really stand for. So thank you for that question. Thank you for that answer. It was... Um... Yeah. Um, so final question. What what are you working on now, now that the book is out? <laughs> okay, it's the most unconventional answer. You know how like Caribbean people are like, studies, 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 get that degree. <laughs> and I'm like, I just want to celebrate. I'm currently planning a book release party for Haiti. I want to do it in Esh, the, his hometown. So, right. So that'll be what I'm also just like turning to what would it be like to be a, a whole mother? So I want to focus on that personal stuff that gets neglected from graduate school through this tenured process, through this hazing process of being a historian who's tenured and with a book. So really celebrating how great this book is doing. And it's not through me. Like I know my press was just like, we need you on Facebook live. And I'm like, what? I have a class to prep for three other classes. And so to see this network of people who've been waiting for this book and who've had constructive conversation with me about it. Like, oh, this is what I love. This is what, this is what I wish you could do. Like one person was like, I wish you had put Shalman Pinot in the on the cover. And I'm like, he's light-skinned in his uh, stamp, but in the US records, he's like my color and darker. So I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it kind of thing. But I love those constructive concerns because that tells me you're interested in this work and interested in this larger story beyond the heroic revolution or the, the bit of the Duvalier. So I really want to celebrate and focus on pivot towards motherhood <laughs> this next stage. Oh, mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Definitely. Thank you so much for the opportunity.